Okay, thank you very much for the invitation to talk to you this evening. This lecture was originally delivered five years ago. It was commissioned for a special event on the 1st of November 2002. It was effectively my valedictory address. Valedictory, valet means goodbye. So at that point, I was the president of the section of anesthesia at the Royal Academy of Medicine in Ireland. And the tradition on that particular night is that you can pick a topic close to your heart and talk to your colleagues and other invited guests. We held a joint meeting on that night with the Irish Paint Society, so it was larger than the usual gathering. And it was an opportunity to introduce an audience, some of whom would have known that I would have come to the School of Philosophy, and it was really to introduce them to a little bit of philosophy in the connection with medicine. I suppose in terms of a gathering of philosophers such as this, it is an opportunity to see some of the workings of the doctors group in the school, which has been active certainly um, in the last 10, 20 years. It's an opportunity also to get a taste of Ayurveda, which is one of the great jewels of the Veda. And finally, I suppose it's an opportunity to see a student in the School of Philosophy with a particular interest or vocation and how that interacts with philosophy, medicine, philosophy, and vice versa. So the Academy in Dublin is an interesting group. It's basically came together in the last in two centuries ago, in the 19th century, and it was a collection of different clinical disciplines devoted to gathering and sharing information. And at that stage, Dublin was very much home of what's referred to as bedside or clinical teaching. And it was really an opportunity to combine knowledge and experience. And hopefully some of this talk will emphasize that point. I'm going to begin with the Hippocratic Oath. Generations of medical students in Dublin and in other cities across Europe stood up at the end of their graduation and they took this oath. Now, most members of the lay public still believe that doctors make this commitment upon graduation, yet this tradition has lapsed for some time. But it's a good place to start in a lecture entitled Philosophy and Medicine and ask the question, in this technological era of medicine, has the art of medicine been transcended? Has the love of wisdom anything to offer a medicine that awaits the unraveling of the human genome as the solution to modern disease? Are there true principles that hold in all circumstances, or do they fall down in the face of impossible clinical scenarios that challenge medical ethics to the core of its foundations? The Hippocratic Oath that I'm going to read from now, the current translation came out of the doctor's group in the school using a Greek scholar. There are a number of versions of the oath, and this is the one we finally accepted as authentic. I swear by Apollo, the healer, by Asclepius, by Hygieia, by panacea, and by all the gods and goddesses, calling on them as witnesses. I will carry out to the full, in accordance with my ability, and following my judgment, this oath and bond. Firstly, I will hold the one who taught me this art and this bond as equal to my parents. I will live in common cause with him. I will give him support when he is in need, and I will treat those of his kind as equal to my brother. And should they need to learn it, I will teach them this art without pay or bond. And I will offer the precepts, oral instruction, and the rest of the teaching to all my sons and to those of my teacher, as well as to students bound by medical law, but to no other. 
And in accordance with my ability and following my judgment, I will employ all treatments for the benefit of the sick. And as far as my understanding allows, I will abstain from deceit and wrongdoing. And I will give no fatal drug, even if asked to do so, nor will I counsel such a course. And I will not give abortion to women, but with purity and devotion will I live and practice. Nor will I pass this deed over to my colleagues or other practitioners. When I enter a home, it will be for the benefit of the sick, avoiding all wrongdoing and harm, and all sexual acts with women or men, slave or free. Of the many things that I hear or see in the course of my practice or in life outside, of those things which ought not to be spoken, I will not speak, considering such matters as sacred. May he who swears this oath and does not violate it, may his life and art ever enjoy honor among men. May he who swears falsely and does transgress, may the opposite befall him. So you can see, quite a commitment. I do not intend to talk about the human life aspects of the oath tradition, but use it as an illustration of a commitment made by doctors to eternal principles, respect to teachers, professional conduct, protection of life, confidentiality, personal honor, and commitment. So that is tradition, however, we're used to challenging tradition. The Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, all challenge tradition. Every day in pain management, we get our patients to challenge their habitual thinking in trying to improve the pain relief for patients postoperatively on the wards. We challenge traditional practice. One of the modern complementary therapists put it succinctly with the pithy statement, change your thinking, change your life. The Austrian psychologist Viktor Frankl, drawing on his brutal experience in Nazi concentration camps, put it even better. He said that you can choose your attitude. It is your only ultimate freedom. The oath, the Hippocratic oath, gave a particular attitude or emotional ground in which to practice medicine. The question arises, what is the current emotional ground? Are doctors healthy, stress-free? Do they inspire confidence in their patients? Are they assisted by professional healthcare workers happy in their work, delighted to serve the needs of the patient and supported the doctors? Is economics and the lack of resources the only problem with the modern health service, or is there something more fundamentally out of balance? Should we look again at philosophy for some new ideas? Can we renew our commitment not just to the science, but also to the art of medicine? Is it not time to go in search of the real medicine? Between 1988 and 1992, I treated asthmatics. My main job in life was as a research fellow, totally immersed in every aspect of the disease, bronchial asthma. So I grappled with every new scientific detail, and at times I felt I was drowning in that sea of detail. I became fascinated with the intricacies of the immune system. It was a very creative time for me. I lived between two cities, London, Dublin, we did the science in London and, and the clinical work in Dublin. At the same time, I was reasonably new to the school, and I was beginning to realize that philosophy could offer something to medicine. And this alchemy of the scientific approach with its emphasis on precision and detail and philosophy with its big picture proved alluring. Over the years, the search for a better medicine has taken me to London, Greece, India, China, Japan, and involved a study of philosophy, homeopathy, acupuncture, medical hypnotherapy, and Ayurveda. At university, I noted that in physics, 
the certainty of a universe composed of atoms had been shattered. The magnificence of Isaac Newton's laws did not hold at the subatomic level. In chemistry, Prigogine's work demonstrated that systems far from equilibrium were amazingly full of order despite chaos. Yet in biology, the foundation for medicine, there still is enormous faith in the reductionist approach, a belief that when the genetic code is unraveled fully, we will know. It is worth reflecting on Francis Crick's statement, Francis Crick, one of the fathers of modern genetics, on the genetic code in 1979. He stated that all the genetic and molecular biological work of the last 60 years could be seen as a long interlude, the sense being that to know the genetic alphabet, words and syntax, is a great start, but putting it back together, learning the laws of grammar and the language of the genetic code will prove more challenging. So, if you're faced in life with a complex jigsaw puzzle and you can't put the bits together and you're drowning in a sea of detail, it's good to try to get back to some first principles, to look for the picture on the box to guide you in making the jigsaw, or to put it another way, if someone gives you a priceless instrument, such as the human body, and you're getting into trouble, it makes sense to go and look for the instruction manual. And this is what philosophy ultimately offers. One of the scientific papers that I came across in our training was by a guy called Max Perutz. Now, Max Perutz described the hemoglobin molecule. And the hemoglobin molecule carries four oxygen molecules. And its mechanism of delivery of the oxygen is quite beautiful in terms of the science. And it's interesting in describing it, he quoted from scripture at the top of his paper. And the principle he quoted actually reflects how the molecule works. So he was a man who could see the connection between philosophy and science. And at the beginning of his paper, he wrote down, To him who has, much more will be given. And to him who has not, even that which he has will be taken away. And this is the way hemoglobin works. Very hard to take up the first molecule, but the first molecule of oxygen is taken up, the others follow suit, and vice versa in the tissues. So, going back to first principles, if we look at traditional medicine, and much of my knowledge here is informed by my study of Ayurveda. So, a boy sitting in a classroom in the ancient world may have asked his teacher, what happens to food ingested into the body? Traditional medicine would say that it is cooked in the stomach, which is like putting it into a fired oven, thus generating energy, water, and air before the earth of the food is discarded. You might say, very simplistic, very elemental. However, modern science will put the detail on it, and we'll talk about the glycolytic pathway. We'll talk about the tricarboxylic acid cycle. We'll talk about oxidative phosphorylation. And the detail is impressive, but at the end of the day, it's still a cooking mechanism. We even still talk about food in terms of calories, units of heat. The ATP, which is energy that's produced at the end of the process, leaves aside water and air in the form of carbon dioxide. Ayurveda means the science of life. It's a full system of medicine and it evolved out of the philosophy of India. Unlike other traditional medicines, it is still accessible today because it's written in its entirety down in the classical language of Sanskrit. Some other instructions from the Ayurvedic instruction manual on life. The following practical instructions are offered about the intake of food. Eat and prepare natural and fresh food appropriate to climatic conditions. Be in a happy frame of mind when eating. Use the correct balance of all six tastes. Sweet, sour, salt, pungent, bitter and astringent. Be present to taste the food. 
Sip water during the meal as if baking a cake. Once the food is in the stomach, do not disturb, do not snack until the food is fully cooked. It goes on to suggest in terms of measures. If you imagine your, your stomach in three, three quarter, four quarters, if you leave the table with one quarter empty, so that the stomach is half full with food, a quarter with liquid, a quarter empty. And the idea there is there's a natural expansion which takes place over the next 20 minutes, and this facilitates proper digestion. If you're full at the table, you don't get proper digestion, and you get toxins in the system. Another example of what this traditional medicine would offer, looking at the energy that comes from food. The energy from food is processed through seven tissues. Raza, Rakta, Mansa, Medas, Ashti, Maja, Shukra. And the final destination of the food energy is the mind. Now this is difficult to correlate with our own modern physiology. But in the realm of new ideas, how about investigating the effect of food on mental function? Hyperactive children might be a good place to start before we prescribe the Ritalin. What is the relationship between diet and infertility and sexual dysfunction? What is the effect of fertilizers that we spray on vegetables, given their estrogen-like properties? Why were we so surprised as a society that feeding a vegetarian animal the cow, dead animal brains, could produce a degenerative brain disease? I went to a medical school without any teaching in diet. I suspect it's not that different now. So you can see that the study of medicine based on philosophical systems is both challenging and potentially a source of new ideas and paradigms. From Arthur Kessler's book, The Sleepwalkers and the Great Scientists, emerges the view that there have always been people in the world who are good at detail, and there have always been people at the world who see the big picture. However, it is only when both come together that true creativity happens. The 90s were declared the decade of neuroscience, how we're going to understand how the brain works in the nervous system. In 1997, 10 years ago, I worked in London in St. Thomas's Hospital. The emeritus professor of physiology there was a man called Patrick Wall. He was one of the great luminaries in the pain medicine world. He described the gate theory of pain back in 1965, and this led to 20, 30 years of sustained research. And he came in and took us as this retired professor on one evening and suggested that we get our physiology books and we tear out the chapter on the brain, the nervous system, because it was all wrong. And that we were in an era now where we literally had to start writing the book again. And with the new technologies of functional MRI and specialized scans, our understanding was changing. So it gave me the idea that if the textbooks were wrong, it's not unreasonable to start looking at what philosophy has to say about how the brain works, how the mind works. So let's for a few moments look at this realm of the more subtle aspect of our instrument, the mind. Philosophy starts with the senses. And the gateway to the mind are the senses. The great quote from the Gita runs as follows. You're familiar with it, you've heard it before, but it's worth considering. Thought of sensory objects brings attachment. Attachment creates desire. Unfulfilled desires make way for anger. Anger creates delusion. Delusion causes loss of memory. And loss of memory destroys reason. And one who has lost reason meets destruction. The senses can get us into a lot of trouble. So how do we master them? Our Western civilization has a long history of indulgence followed by suppression of sensory appetite. 
Shankaracharya has the following to say about the senses. As it is impossible to satisfy the craving of the senses completely, it is necessary to understand the concept of balance, the art of which is to keep the fire alive and bright by using a measured supply of fuel. To suppress the senses or to finish the job at once is an extremist approach. The regulations or measures create strength and help one to have control over the natural phenomena. Gaining strength is very important, for this alone brings the play of reason against the tyranny of sensory appetite. He goes on to recommend appreciation, that is to take the sensory stimuli in physically, mentally and intellectually, thus avoiding sensory gluttony and getting stuck at the physical level. He states, deep satisfaction brings a stop to the craving. When one sees a beautiful object, the natural inclination is to desire to bring it home. The wise also take all experience home to the self. They never desire to repeat the act of seeing. Instead of converting or repeating the experience, it is much better to turn inwards and complete the experience by conscious satisfaction. The importance of the correct management of the senses is crystallized in Ayurveda with the statement, one of the causes of disease is the overuse, underuse, or misuse of the senses. Have we missed out on this science of measure, the balanced use of the senses? What is the guy with the Sony Walkman on all day doing to his brain? Or the misuse of the sense of smell with solvent abuse? Are we overstimulated visually? Is the problem with diet that we taste too much or too little? Do we not touch our patients too little as we opt for machines and technology instead of the human touch, the healing hand? Could this be practical medicine reintroducing a measured life to both patient and therapist? Shankaracharya states, measured life keeps all miseries and troubles away and allows a healthy, happy and unified life. It increases power and expands the scope. In physiology we call this homeostasis. In 2002, I was asked to review a textbook for physiology students in Trinity College. And the opening statement on the nervous system was, the nervous system as one of the body's two major control systems regulates many body activities aimed at maintaining a stable internal environment. Homeostasis is essential for the survival of cells. Our only mistake is to believe it stops there. It is essential as a guiding principle to our life. In media stad virtus, the balance is in the middle. Overuse, underuse, or misuse, they are all extremes which we can correct and in so doing prevent disease. Mr. McLaren asked Shankaracharya a question on the role of the mind. What is the effect of the mind on disease? Answer. The mind has a dual process. It may be affected by the disease or refuse to be affected. Those who have not learned the art of reason are easily affected by the disease. First, the discursive mind becomes affected. And then the intellect accepts the effect, and then it becomes automatic. This is very common nowadays, and most men give in so quickly due to external or bodily troubles. They all seem to have very weak minds. So, what have we learned about the mind in studying philosophy? and Dwight in particular. As an instrument, there are four components. 
the discursive mind, manas, the intellect, buddhi, the emotional ground, citta, and the ego, ahankara. The discursive mind is the source or has the power to formulate all desires, perceptions, concepts, resolutions, irresolution, imagination, faithfulness and unfaithfulness, shame, knowledge and fear. Its function is also to process all sensory data. If uncontrolled, it leads to destruction by allowing the senses to reside in the objects of sense, use their energy to their utmost and completely destroy them by using them. For each sense it formulates as a resolution, there is an alternative resolution to facilitate the operation of free will. When all the information is available, the issue is presented to the intellect, which decides if it is reasonable or not. It is said that when the intellect appreciates measure, it becomes still and steady, and is therefore better equipped to perform its vital function. Therefore, a patient who learns how to live a life of measure allows the intellect to fall still and has greater access to reason. The function of the intellect is to reflect the pure light of consciousness and the form of all beings, thereby endowing reason, discrimination, decision and creation. The role of ego, ahankara and citta, heart, if it is perceived to be reasonable, then the emotional ground or heart will have to decide the measure of power which to pursue it or not. The heart has strong connections with the past and is the seat of memory. It is often responsible for patterns repeating themselves again and again. It is said that the being of a man is known by this emotional ground and this is why people are forced sometimes to do what does not seem reasonable to the intellect. And finally the ego motivates the resolution into action. The ego is at the end of the sequence and has to use the raw material it is offered. For true health, the mind, body and the senses must be in a state of balance. So if we look at the intellect in a little more detail because it is pivotal in terms of health. Shankaracharya states, rational operations of the intellect are better only if lighter or refined laws of nature have been understood, accepted and preferred. So for the mind to function you need reason which in turn depends on true education. We know with modern neuroscience that education molds the brain, growing new connections between brain cells. But philosophy tells us more. It is not just the understanding, it is also acceptance and preference. You may know and understand that alcohol is bad for you, but you have to accept it at a deeper level and then you have to practice it, you have to prefer it. How do we measure that? It is said that the mark of a wise man is that he speaks what is in his heart and does what he speaks. There is a clear line from mind to heart to action. By their fruits, fruits you shall know them. Ayurveda relates disease to abnormal diet, cognition, the way we think, and behavior. In the West, we would probably ignore diet, refusing to, to accept that it could be central to the problem. We have a very narrow concept of behavior, confining it to an overplay of symptoms or a role play that has grown up around the illness. Behavior is the totality of how a being interacts with his family, work, and society. Ayurveda as a science of life approaches the mind from the body, which makes it much more accessible to us. The body is composed of five elements, ether, air, fire, water, and earth. 
The elements combine to form three energies, um, a water energy called kapha, a fire energy called pitta, and an air energy called vata. The three energies govern all physiology in the body and therefore represent the body's constitution. The concept here is that everybody has all five elements and all three energies, but the proportion is different, and this difference creates our individual appearance and behavior. From a scientific point of view, if this concept is valid, it has major implications for all clinical research and may explain why it is difficult to get conclusive results out of clinical trials. For example, I may do an acupuncture study for um, the study of uh, migraine as a treatment for migraine and come up usually with pretty inconclusive results. But if I divide my study group into three clinical constitutional types, kapha, pitta, vata, I may discover that acupuncture works well in one group, but not in the other two. A master in acupuncture like Felix Mann, who was quite famous in London for the latter part of the 20th century, will tell you without any knowledge of Ayurveda that it's only certain types of people respond to acupuncture. He states quite freely, I don't know what the system is, but I can recognize them. So he has an innate knowledge that there is um, a responder to this form of therapy. Ayurveda goes further. It goes on to state that particular constitutional types have susceptibilities to specific diseases. Neurological and psychiatric diseases affect the vata constitution. Cardiovascular, upper gut, skin diseases, lymphatic diseases affect the fire or pitta constitution. And endocrine, chest and kidney disease affect the kapha constitution. If we move from the body to the senses, each element is associated with a specific sense in ascending order from the most dense to the most subtle. So earth, the most dense, is connected with the sense of smell. Water, the sense of taste. Fire, the sense of vision. Air, the sense of touch. And space, the sense of sound. It states that as one falls deeply asleep, as in, say, anesthesia, my primary specialty, the senses march out in that order. It's also suggested that when we die, if we die slowly, the senses march out in that order. If you go fast, you miss it. To an anaesthetist, this is quite interesting if you look at traditional anesthesia. What happens first is movement of the earth element. There's just something captured as the patient breathes in the, the gas. Then they go to the water phase. You see kind of tearing in the eye, a flow in the eye. You see a very brief fire phase in which there's a kind of a form to the face. And then every anesthetist would be familiar with the excitation phase, the air phase in which the patient moves. And finally, you get to the ether phase, which is associated with hearing. And the interesting thing about hearing and anesthesia is we have no evidence that hearing goes. So hearing is the most subtle of the senses, and it probably stays. That knowledge is thousands of years old. We're still working on the mechanisms of anesthesia. Within the school, we're very familiar from part one with the three guna, tamas, rajas, sattva. And they are important too in health and our knowledge of the subtle realm. Tamas absorbs consciousness and holds the form of things. The experience is heedlessness and laziness. How is the body? It is heavy and weary. Our senses are dull, mind foggy, slow, confused, and haunted by limitation of all kinds. Emotions are dark, mean, and destructive. Love has become jealousy, envy, and spite. 
and the beloved has become the object of calculated ill will. Rajas, activity, creation, passion. In Rajas we experience thirst for what has not been attained, an attachment to what has. Mind is busy with ends and means, how to achieve this result, how to avoid that result, plans, schemes. The body is tense and restless. The emotions are about give and take. There is bargaining with the beloved. Excitement, exuberance, delight, joy, anger, frustration, aversion, sorrow. And then there is sattva. Sattva conducts consciousness. It is stainless and pure, lucid and healthy, and reflects things as they are. The body is light, refreshed, agile, healthy, alert and at ease. The mind is clear, bright, perceptive. Information is gathered readily and assimilated. Learning is easy and reasoning is incisive and memory is acute. Emotions are uncluttered. You're responsive to others, positive, working for unity. Love makes no demands on the beloved nor asserts conditions and is free from the strident claims of ego. St. Paul captured the essence of sattva in the following way. Whatsoever things are true, Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. In many respects, the journey into sattva is the journey towards the real medicine. In sattva, there is no ego to claim the experience. So you live in the temple of your aliveness or inner self. You speak the truth and you walk the path in life that is appropriate to your constitution. So, having looked at the physical realm and having looked at what philosophy has to say about the subtle or psychological realm, the question arises, what is the real medicine? Well, knowledge of the body accounts for 25% and means that knowing precisely how it works, the latest scientific discoveries, to be fascinated by the amazing advances of modern science. On a physical level, you ignore diet at your peril, and your behavior or lifestyle is equally as critical. A good rule of thumb is, if you find yourself adopting an extreme position or behavior, you are probably wrong. The truth is usually in the middle. Measure in sleep, food, work, and leisure, appropriate to your constitution. Watch those senses, overuse, underuse, or misuse. When you are getting a little too fixed in your ways, you are accumulating too much earth. Probably you need to exercise. In fact, Ayurveda recommends 45 minutes exercise per day. Remember, exercise is not just physical. It shifts your mental energies from tamas to rajas. Straight away you can see that it is an interconnected system. Mind influences body and vice versa. Take a shower and see how it shifts your mental energy. Maybe cleanliness is next to godliness. It means more sattva, so that you can be fully present and see things as they are. The next 25% of the real medicine is your knowledge in an integrated way of the subtle realm. We need to know how the mind works. We can follow the fascinating discoveries from neuroscience and we can learn from practical philosophy and other medical systems. With stress responsible for 75% of GP consultations and depression rapidly taking over as the leading disease in the world, we may have to move fast on this front. We cannot divorce the mind from the physical, nor the physical from the mental. 
On a practical level, there is a need to practice some way of allowing the mind to come to stillness. For some, this could be meditation. For others, the technique may need to be more physical. It depends on their constitution and state of mental health. It fascinates me that both medicine and meditation are the same Latin root, meditare, which means to heal. And there is a need for all of us to heal at a deeper level, to have not only a healthy body, but a mind that is full of truth, awareness and bliss. And I'd like to read to you now an answer Shankaracharya gave to, again, a question put by Mr. McLaren in 1976. And it generated the title for this talk, the question, among all the systems of medicine, Western, Chinese, Indian, ancient Egyptian, what is the real medicine? Answer, all these systems of medicine are outward systems of medicine. The disease takes root in the subtle body, passing into the sanskara, into the causal body. And it is there as a piece of knowledge or a piece of emotion. And this sanskara in the causal body, in the course of time, fulfills itself as a disease in the human body, in the physical body. The real medicine is none of these physical medicines. It is the punya, the virtuous deeds to which the sanskara is purified, as in meditation. Through the meditation, the sanskara could be purified, and the effect which is about to happen could be nullified. This is the real medicine. All the others are there only to carry people for a time and to give them temporary relief. So the mathematicians at this point will say that I've told you about 50% of the real medicine. What's the other 50%? Over the years, people have asked me, should I try this system or that system? And how effective one therapy is versus another therapy? I tend to focus in latter years not so much on the therapy that I'm being asked about, but on simply who is doing the therapy. The factor that we keep forgetting again and again is yourself. Never underestimate the power of attention, love and awareness. We know from placebo theory in medicine and science that 33% of patients get better just by looking at them. So why ignore this gift and build on it? In truth, the therapist, be it doctor, physiotherapist, psychologist, the therapist is the medicine. And the more you, the therapist works at living the life of truth to connect with the sentiment in the Hippocratic Oath, the more effective will their therapeutic intervention be. This is the art of medicine, which perhaps has been forgotten in this scientific medical era. But the universe is clever because you can't just let this go to your head because it's still only 50%. You need to know the physical. You need to know the subtle. And you need to work on yourself. It is always an interconnected system. A second question and answer that I'd like to read to you, it's a final one for tonight, again put to Shankaracharya, gives a sense of the bigger picture. The question was put by Charlotte Mendes de Costa, who was a doctor, this is at an early stage in her career in the 90s. She wrote to Mr. McLaren about a situation in which decisions were being taken about children who perhaps would not survive. And Mr. McLaren wrote back to her, and quoted from Shankaracharya on life support machines. Beloved Charlotte, thank you for your letter of the 13th of October. The principle is simple. As a doctor, one does all that one knows to sustain life. 
and never takes an action which will terminate it. The examples which you have given of children who were expected to die but are now 20 years old or more are good illustrations. The body doesn't die because of a disease. It dies when the consciousness is withdrawn. When this event takes place, no treatment can preserve the life. The fact that in the cases mentioned, the life was preserved will be for a good reason. While there is life in a human being, there is the possibility of his learning that lesson which will stop the recurrence of the present condition, whether it be hereditary or arising from former lives. In reply to a question arising from life support machines, Sri Shankaracharya said, the laws of nature have been spelt out by the absolute through his will. This will is regulated by time. Therefore, birth, growth, old age, decay and death follow through a general time schedule. Those who acquire the knowledge of the laws of nature live a healthy and long life, but each living being has to die one day. With Ponya and good sanskara and meditation, one can lengthen one's life to enjoy the beautiful and blissful creation and civilization and also contribute according to one's talent towards its well-being and development till the last day of departure. There is no good reason to speed up the process to reach death by default or economy. Death cannot be negated because it is his will. But life should also not be negated because it is his gift. The development of science art and philosophy is to help life to be lived blissfully for as long as possible. Life support machines and other instruments and medicines apart from a healthy environment, philosophy and meditation must be used to lengthen life right to the last breath. Let no one assume the power to inflict death upon anyone under any conditions. Care with attention and devotion would open up new channels to improve life for the future. Death is the prerogative only of the Absolute. He knows when to ring the bell. No one needs to play God of death. Support life to the last breath. When the last moment does arrive at the bidding of the Absolute, no medicine, machine or prayer would be able to help in any way. Therefore, till then, one must do everything possible, scientifically, medically, ethically, rationally, and spiritually to help lent in the God-given life. Time and death are both represented by the same word, Kala, in Sanskrit. One aspect of the Absolute is Kala. Let us not try to control it. End of quote. Resuscitation is a means of preserving life, whether it be from drowning or from some other disease. If it can be used, it should be used and not withheld. Blessing and love, Leon McLaren. The great teacher of Ayurveda, Charaka, put it nicely when he described health as resting on a tripod of body, mind and spirit. I can remember the first conversation on this journey I had with Vedya Ashwin Bharat in Harley Street in 1990. If a patient is stuck at the physical level, you need to broaden their picture and step them up to the mental level. If they are living within their head, they need to be stepped up to the spiritual and causal level. I then, in my innocence, believed that the problem was over at that point. The patient had moved from body to mental level to spiritual level. And at that point, Dr. Barat just laughed 
and said, well, usually when the patient is at the spiritual level, they forget or have forgotten that they have a body and they need to be reminded of this fact. Body, mind and spirit are inseparable. In our own history, we've produced many great men and women. William Butler Yeats, our national poet and Nobel laureate on election to the Senate in the 1920s, stated that, in fact, Ireland had produced two great philosophers, but had managed to ignore both of them, John Scotus and Bishop Berkeley. Hopefully, this lecture will encourage you to see that the love of wisdom as part of our heritage can act as a living instruction manual for life. Yeats himself had a great turn of phrase, and in his, his poem, Among School Children, he captures this indivisible tripod of body, mind, and spirit. O chestnut tree, great rooted blossomer, are you the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl? O body, sway to music, O brightening glance, how can we know the dancer from the dance? Thank you. So it's over to you guys. You've heard the talk. Any questions? Get the ball rolling. Um, can you explain to me why has modern had modern medicine gone so far off the beaten track? Why has it seemed, why does it seem to have lost its understanding of the, the whole nature of things? I think there's a great belief in the technology and in the, the scientific developments of present. I, I'm always amazed by patients have an expectation that modern medicine can deliver something that it can't deliver. It's almost like it's the point of mesmerism. Mesmer was this guy who used to kind of hypnosis within audiences and the term mesmerism came up. But it's almost to the point that we suspend reason. We actually expect that the technology is so good that it can sort out all of our problems. And I don't think it's just medicine. I think that's society in general. And it may tie in with an aspect of the talk which looked at that sense of measure. Um, but we, we tend to take on board too much. We get overstimulated. If you take something simple, like a magnificent invention like electricity, okay? So the very fact that we have electricity means that with this wonderful technology, we can meet here late at night, and we can do lots of things late at night, which previous generations never did because they didn't have the electric power. Now, you could argue that in, in the light of the, the talk that I've just gone through, that that's a kind of an overuse of a particular sense. Senses are overstimulated. There's lots of rajas in society, lots of movement in society, and that has propelled medicine as well as everything else. Having said that, you, you can't lose your perspective because clearly many of the developments in the modern world we enjoy produce wonderful discoveries and technologies each year. So it really is a question of getting that balance, getting back into the centre a little bit. And uh, the old phrase of not throwing out the baby with the bathwater comes to mind. Okay. Any more questions? There at the back. Could I get your views on the prescribing of antidepressants? You say, take Ireland, I'm sure it's probably the same in the States and everywhere. It's reached a phenomenal level as far as I know. I'm not quite sure the figures. In your opinion, is it a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, most GPs are probably overworked or whatever, or under pressure, and it seems to be a panacea as far as the GP is concerned to scribble out a prescription for whatever antidepressant you care to mention. They all have their favourites. Mm. Just get your views on that. Sure, yeah, yeah. 
Fair enough. Well, as I mentioned in the talk, apparently the Surgeon General in, in America, who's a public health official, has declared that by 2010, depression will be the number one chronic disease in the world. So clearly, there's a problem. Now, how will philosophy look at depression? From a few aspects. If we look at the mind, we look at three energies, tamas, rajas, and sattva. So you have lots of tamas in the mind in depression, so you have a darkening of the mind. One simple way out of that is if you want to look at moving from tamas to rajas, a little bit more exercise helps. So say, for example, when we have our patients with chronic pain, we review them in the clinic. Some patients, at least 50% of patients with chronic pain, will get depressed, and it stands to reason. Like, you know, the pain that won't get better, and you get fed up and then you get the fed up becomes a bit deeper and then you get depressed. And what we try to do initially is to use everything before we get to, and we're often forced to use prescription drugs, but we'll encourage an active exercise program. So we get a little bit of rajas in to move a little bit of the tamas. So we'll actually make that connection between mind and body. Ayurveda would probably go a little bit more and say, well, maybe you should look at diet. Modern psychotherapists would probably say, in fairness to them, that you look at the thinking process and you look at the way you think about the process. So we would offer our patients in a rehab setting a therapy called cognitive behavioral therapy, which is you're looking at that thinking process and you're trying to get the patient to move to a more positive way of thinking, a more constructive way of thinking in different situations. So in fairness, there are a number of different therapeutic approaches to depression. In modern life, there doesn't seem to be the time to deal with um, maybe the consultation in terms of the general practitioner or in terms of the capacity to stand back from the lifestyle and say, well, look, there's lots of contributing factors here in the home life or in the work environment that may be addressed. So I would certainly say to you that philosophy would say we need to look at the bigger picture. And clearly you've picked up on the fact that we're prescribing a lot. And, and it's a bit like the answer to the last question, there's a, something out of balance there, and we need to move a little bit back towards the center. At the same time, at the other end of the spectrum, you have you know, an epidemic in terms of suicide, and you have lots of problems at the mental realm that genuinely do need intervention. And sometimes when you look at the intervention that's offered and you see all the criticisms about the drugs, etc., it's probably not often realized that often in those situations we're doing the best that we can do. In other words, Again, we tend to assume that the knowledge we have now is perfect, but it's not. The knowledge is constantly being looked at, and we're looking for better mechanisms, treatments all of the time. So it would be wrong to assume that today's correct treatment would be still the correct treatment tomorrow, and hopefully the treatment of depression and many other illnesses will improve over the next um, generation. The other aspect is that one reason why the figures look very bad at the moment in terms of prescribing antidepressants is if you look at the previous generation, a lot of people were on Valium. Now, because Valium then, in terms of the prescription of Valium, became something that was discouraged, you'll find a lot of those patients who were on Valium are now on antidepressants. So if you go back and look at the figures in terms of antidepressants and those who were on Valium, it was a bigger figure and the change may not be as dramatic. In other words, there is a cohort of patients who are getting a variety of drugs to deal with this illness.
you just went back a step from antidepressants to say Valium. Mm. I wonder if you went back a step or two steps back further mm. to where people lived a less materialistic lifestyle sure. and one would have the impression that they led a more contented lifestyle. Mm. There was less envy of the man in the manor house or whatever, you know. Yeah. People were happy with, with their lot. Mm. They tended to be, generally. Yeah. Okay, you'd, you'd have the ad- aberration where you had alcoholism maybe to a certain extent and you, you still would have had suicide to a certain extent. Yeah. But I don't think it was as pervasive as now. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think a lot of the problems we have now come from materialism. And I think if people adopted the, the training or the, the thinking of philosophy, it would probably eliminate a lot of the stress that give rise to depression and that kind of sure. thing. Okay, I, I appreciate that you have to prescribe drugs in the short term if somebody mm-hmm. is actually depressed. Mm-hmm. But if you had people thinking the proper way, mm-hmm. they wouldn't get depressed, in my opinion. Sure. I'll just throw it out then for our discussion because you, you took me back to the various generations and it just came into mind that we might look at, say, the 18th, 19th century solution and stand back now and say, oh, that was a horrible thing to happen. But if you look at it, the idea then was if someone was depressed, mentally disturbed, you took them out of their lifestyle and you put them in a mental hospital. But if you notice, the traditional model was they had you know, gardens, farms, etc. And they actually got the person to work. Now, we look at that and we think that's cruel. But the interesting thing is, to a certain extent, if you're in deep tamas, you need a little bit of activity. And maybe it was a bit more compassionate than what we do now, and we put people in a kind of a pharmacological straitjacket, as opposed to what's perceived to be taking a person out of their routine environment and putting them into a kind of a disciplined structure. So there is a lot that you could kind of look at in there, but I take the point that using philosophy and looking at the bigger picture may allow us to offer better treatments to patients affected by depression and to society in general. So there was a question over here. What influence do you think the School of Philosophy has, if any, on medical practitioners in Ireland, for example, you know, at this point in time? Well, as the only senior <laughs> student in medicine in the School of Philosophy, what, <laughs> what has been my influence? Well, a number of doctors have come over the years. I, I always live in hope that they'll last the pace. I suppose I have given this talk originally to a hospital audience and it went down reasonably well. On that occasion, I could determine my topic. I've never actually been invited to do this type of talk to a medical audience. And I'm not so sure that they would be ready for it as a group. There are certainly lots of individual doctors who would be open to many of the ideas. But in terms of the profession in general, I would think that maybe not at the moment. Having said all of that, opportunities to talk in public raises a little bit of activity around the topic. And because of my interest, I have been asked to talk at, for example, the Merriman Summer School on two occasions in which I talked about philosophy and medicine. And it's interesting, after that, I would get the occasional email from doctors wanting to have the speech or to have the talk or whatever. And this talk is to be repeated in Tullamore next week. And one or two of the doctors down there asked me for my Merriman talk. So there is an interest there. And it remains to be seen what will happen in general. In the school globally, there is a doctor's group in, in London, 
and that work on the Hippocratic Oath, a lot of work went into just finding a good translation of it, um, so certainly that was um, looked at. And there's various branches of the school internationally, and I know that in Australia um, there's some work, New South Wales, Melbourne area, so there is a little bit of profile. The work that has been done on the Hippocratic Oath, I'm a bit difficult with it yeah. because what you had on the board there yeah. said, you know, assistance with abortion. Yeah. And why my own opinion would be yes, life is precious. But at the same time, there have been babies born, especially in England recently, where doctors have decided that after birth, nothing was going to be done to assist life. Yeah. So, uh, the, uh, you know, they, they are against abortion for something that a life that is uh, not feasible. And then afterwards, to fight the back with the parents are fighting to keep the child alive, the, the courts come down on the side of the doctors. Well, it's important to understand that the Hippocratic Oath has gone, and part of the reason it went was because of the prohibition on abortion in the oath. That's why it disappeared. So modern medicine, each jurisdiction, there would be a medical council which would have ethical guidelines, and the guidelines would be reviewed every five years, and clearly the guidelines change as society changes. And one can debate that, I mean, it's one of the themes in the talk, whether there are eternal principles that hold in all circumstances, or did you just fall down when you have difficult cases? In terms of the, you know, resuscitation, not resuscitate, etc., I thought that the answer offered at the end was very much of the view that you support life to the last breath. That is very much the sound of philosophy. It remains to be seen what society makes with that sound. Uh, you mentioned during the talk there about the, the Indian system for medicine and the importance of eating fresh food. You also mentioned that with modern food there's a lot of chemicals spray and you mentioned estrogens which I was a bit shocked to hear. Mm. I'm just wondering if you could expand a little bit on you know, what your thoughts are and views are on, on diet and you know, what's good for us. Probably most of my ideas on diet would come from Ayurveda and I would say that the Western mind always wants a lot of detail. In other words, any discussions on diet always gets down very quickly to the nitty-gritty of what's good and what's bad, etc., and is it this way or that way. And I would tend to say that the core Ayurvedic principles are just to get the measures right. Very simple instruction. Natural food, the best you can get. Good quality food. The way you prepare it. Your attitude of mind when you prepare it. Eating the food being attentive to the taste, being mindful of the food, being aware of your digestion so that you're not overfilling your stomach, that you're allowing your digestive fire to work. All of these things are important first before the detail of which particular diet, of which particular type of food. When you get down to the detail of the particular diets of particular food, it depends on your constitution. So there are certain rules for certain constitutions. So if you have someone who has a what we call a kapha or water constitution, so they're kind of a, a heavy-framed person. Their metabolism is quite slow. Well, if you give that person a lot of cheese, for example, they won't be able to utilize it very well, and they'll probably gain weight, and they'll become even more sluggish. 
Okay? Equally, you could have someone has a vata constitution, and that's made of air, and they're fast and light, and if you give them lettuce and kind of green food, they're going to get lighter and lighter, and mentally they're going to lose it a little bit. So you actually need to give them the cheese to earth them a little bit. So the idea is to know your constitutional type, and then the diet is appropriate to the constitutional type. But I would emphasize that those core rules that I put up, such so your frame of mind, natural food, not eating, you know, snacking directly after the meal, allowing that space for the digestion, all of these things are very important. And I think when we master them, then we can probably ask a little bit about the detail. But what we tend to do is go for the detail and forget about the kind of the general principles. And you'll be surprised if a few people decide that the quality of the food they buy is important and they start making an extra effort to get that good quality food, society will change gradually. But if we all kind of accept a kind of a bland general standard, then it all becomes a little bit more tamasic and we all suffer the consequences. Any more questions? I'd just like to uh, know your, your view on uh, alternative medicine now, for example, you know, herbal remedies, and you mentioned acupuncture there in your talk a lot, you know. Yeah. What's your opinion on alternative medicine now, say herbal remedies and stuff well, like that now? Okay. Over the years, people have asked me a lot about um, different types of medicine. And in a way, when I give a talk on In Search of the Real Medicine, I'm describing a journey that I'm moving along myself and whether I have reached a point at which this is the end of the journey or we need to go further remains to be seen or whether there's a desire to go further. But if you ask me at this point, I would say the first answer that would come to mind would be what's important to me is who is doing the therapy as opposed to what the therapy is. I think who is doing the therapy is important because it's the therapist. The essence of the therapist is important. So that's the 50% I was talking about. The other two 25% are important too. So if you're a complementary therapist and you have that 25%, in other words, you know your acupuncture or your homeopathy and you know it really well and that you've gone into it and maybe you've got your, you know, your own self-development and your own self-work sorted out as well you can offer clearly a lot of good to people. Where it can come a little bit unstuck is if, say, you have half-baked knowledge and you don't really know your discipline very well and you don't have any knowledge of the physical realm, then some of the times when you're dealing with headache and you're doing acupuncture for it, it is an energy imbalance. But then again, it may not be. It may be a brain tumor that you haven't actually done a scan for. So I think if you ask me what is the best, the top of the range, is a therapist who has done some work on their own inner being. Going back to Dr. Kumar's comment, a good man is a good doctor, or a good therapist, or a good woman is a good doctor, whatever, a variation on that. So that is the artist, the witness to whatever therapy is taking place. But equally, knowledge of the subtle realm and knowledge of the physical realm, if you have all of them, that's the best. So I think, in a way, complementary therapists need to learn a little bit more about the physical because they can ignore that and get into trouble. Just as doctors need to learn a little bit more about the subtle. So I think the balance needs to be readdressed and it's not quite right yet. Any more questions? There's a question at the back. I suffer from my chronic emotional mood disorder and I'm on medication for that. 
listening to your talk and how people get these things, what can I do now that I have it? What would be the most important aspects of my life to help me to improve my situation? Right, okay. Well, within the confines of I can't really give very individual data, but as general principles, if you find yourself with a chronic illness, but clearly you take the expertise offered and whatever treatment you've got, what else can you do on top of that? You can look at the different levels. So you can look at the physical level and you can say, well, okay, in my life, can I look at diet? Can I improve my diet? Can I make sure that I have fresh food? Because autoimmune immune system, so I want to make sure my body defenses are healthy. So have a look at the diet. You may also have a look at, say, exercise, because in modern life we don't get a lot of exercise, and even when we think we get exercise, we don't really get a lot of exercise. So have a look at that aspect. So that's on the physical level, moving a little bit between mind and body, have a look at the senses. And for each person it might be different, but it may be that you're overusing one aspect of your life and underusing another aspect of the life. There are only five senses. Go through them and see how you're doing in terms of each. Like simple example would be, you know, overuse of the sense of vision is you're sitting in front of the TV all day, okay? Underuse of hearing, you don't listen to any music, you don't listen to yourself, you don't listen to anybody else. So try and get a, a sense of a balance with the senses. In terms of the mind, it's useful occasionally to look at your thinking process. In other words, how do you think, what are the thoughts you have around the illness? And to see if they are useful thoughts to have, or if you can come up with a better way of looking at it. Because sometimes the essence of what's referred to as cognitive therapy is having a look in a practical way at what the mind is saying to you. And it may be that by changing your thinking, as Louise Hay said, you can change aspects of your life. That's at the mind, but you need to be able to stand back from that too. And the more you develop a kind of an inner stillness, an inner witness, and something like meditation or whatever might help in that way, but the more you allow that kind of stiller part of the mind to come through, whatever's happening in mind and body is easier to manage. You're mindful of it. You're aware of it, but it's not you. It's not touching the inner being. So in a sense, therefore, you have an instrument which has a problem. The work you've done in terms of your lifestyle clears up the mind so it's not affected by the problem. And ultimately, you have a witness or a silent part of the being that is totally unaffected by the problem. And then that gives you the opportunity to have a good quality of life despite having the problem because in many respects with the mind and that inner witness in place, you can get around lots of the obstacles that are thrown at you at a physical level. So you do it by looking at all of the levels, body, mind, spirit. Any other questions? Hello in the back row. Being very well traveled, have you noticed any dark difference between kind of the West and other countries you've been to, and the actual medicine and treatment, being active, curing diseases, or being proactive, and trying to avoid getting sick. They, in the West, medicine seems to be purely after the event. Sure. Is that correct? Okay, we uh, big drug companies maybe sure. uh, financially sure. the proactive part might be, but in other countries, yeah. you found that medicine is more. I would say that it's like clearly the contrast between, say, the West and India I would have most experience of. Like the problem in India is poverty, it's a lack of money. And there's a whole host of different issues come up when you lack money. Like in the West, you people talking about their stress and 
the depression and the inner world and the difficulties in life, etc. But like in a place like India, you, you want money to eat. So it produces a totally different dynamic. So you do see that difference in the world, the different focus, the different way of living. And like in India, in, in terms of poverty, well, you don't have the money to engage someone in preventative work. Nice idea, and we always hear that, but like you don't really have the money. But what you do have, for those who are still in touch with the tradition, and unfortunately India, like everywhere else, they're looking to the West, they think we have the answer, and we're looking to the East thinking they have the answer, but those who are still connected with the tradition will have some basic knowledge about diet, seasons, appropriate things to do, etc. So that would be the, the contrast between the two. Yeah, that's the tradition said to be in Chinese medicine. Interestingly, I didn't really see it when I was there, but I was only in Beijing and I wasn't in the villages. Interestingly, I was there in 95, communist country. I did notice, and it's perhaps a comment on our health service, but in the traditional Chinese medicine department in the main hospital where I used to go every day, uh, the patients came in, they signed in, and they paid money for the service. Small amount of money, which was interesting, but they were paying for the treatment. So I'm not so sure. Maybe that tradition did exist. And I've heard it talked about, but I'm not so sure it's there still. Question here? I was just wondering as what you've seen, but you talked about, like, you said the person that's laid back or more hyper person, or you said the one that's very bad. Yeah. Are they less likely to get disease? Or you know, the one that's more laid back, or the other one that's more active, or the one that has a right good balance? You can live this long life that we don't love to believe in, and we just take our last breath that we just have there. Sure. Sure. Well, I think there's a few things. One, everyone has their own, we'll, we'll use the term genetic or constitution. In other words, there are things written down in your constitution that may happen, no matter what you do. Okay? That's there. And there's not an awful lot you can do about that. Okay? But what you can do something about is how you live your life. And clearly, if you move towards a little bit more sattva, a little bit more balance in mind, a little more stillness in terms of the intellect, you will allow you know, an ability to, to transcend some of those health problems. So I think as you get your own balance right, in terms of at the physical level, by not overeating or undereating or whatever, eating the appropriate food and getting the appropriate exercise and reducing the amount of stress or whatever, then in terms of the mind, as you move towards sattva, then you give yourself a sporting chance to have your health sorted out. But there's always the caveat, you can have, we can all carry things that are going to happen. And there's not a lot you can do about it, other than if they do happen, you carry them. So one of the famous wise men in India, Ramakrishna, I think it was, uh, or one of these guys, had throat cancer. So here was a man at the very highest level, but the throat cancer was inbuilt into his system. He says it didn't disturb him while it was there and he had to go through it. So it doesn't necessarily follow that all will be right if you follow all of these rules. But at least if adversity raises its head, you have that ability to be able to manage it. And it's a bit like the quote in the talk that nowadays the mind has got so weak that it gets overwhelmed by the disease in the body. 
so that the mind becomes a disease. So instead of saying having asthma, for example, it's almost like you become asthma and every aspect of your life is it. So what we can do is create a little bit of space for ourselves in the mind so that we can handle what life throws up a little bit better. Can I just follow up on the yes. question? The three different constituents, the three different types of people at the physical level, you mentioned the different types of food required and so yeah. on. At the subtle level then, does that suggest that there might be different practices in order to bring about greater stillness or greater, particularly in terms of meditation or sure. practices we use? Is, is there a suggestion there that maybe at the subtle level there's a need for different practices to suit the different types? Yeah, well clearly, uh, like we, we touched a little bit on it during the evening, but clearly there's lots of tamas in the mind. Like, a person is very dark and depressed. There's probably a little point in getting them to do meditation. You might actually unbalance them more. In other words, they've got lost in the dark corner of the mind. There's no point in kind of sending them back internally. So maybe the appropriate instruction at a mental level for that type of person is to do some exercise. We just keep it very simple, but in other words, they need to move the tamas a little bit. If someone then has rajas, a lot of activity in the mind, well, what you want to do is move them along to sattva. So offering them something like meditation may offer you know, that transition from the rajas to the sattva. And in terms of the health journey is very much allowing a little bit more sattva to come into the mind. And one can achieve that by meditation, but one can also achieve it by good company. So you actually look at the company that you keep and recognize company that brings out the best in you. You also can get a little bit more sattva by doing things in the present moment. So every time that you are present and you do something consciously, you get a little bit more sattva. So they're all exercises for the mind, for moving the energy balance from maybe tamas, rajas, to sattva. So some of them are physical. So if you tell a guy to do more exercise, you're actually doing it for the mind. I would see a lot of patients, say, with chronic pain who have given up exercise and they quite rightly tell me, look, I've done all the physiotherapy, I've done all the exercise, and the pain's got worse. And I, therefore, have to give them a new reason to exercise. And the, the reason that they really have to exercise is that because of all the ongoing pain, their mind has got a little bit dull. They've got a little bit of darkness, a little bit of tamas there, and they need to shift it so they have a sporting chance of being able to sort the problem out. So therefore, I'm giving a physical treatment there, but I'm actually trying to do something in the mental realm. So I don't think you can neatly separate the two, but certainly a practice like meditation or pausing, coming into the present moment, doing something consciously, they're all useful practices that are both kind of physical and mental. Slightly different uh, note. You're probably familiar with Dr. Jack Gibson, who's the county surgeon here in Nice yeah. uh, for, for a long time. Uh, he had a, a different kind of approach to some medical problems, like he used hypnosis in yeah. many operations yeah. and had very good results or whatever, like yeah. the people recovered quickly and they didn't have to go through the anesthetic or whatever. And he yeah. used it kind of for pre operation and post operation treatments and relaxation techniques and treatments basically to change the person's way of thinking about what was happening or going to happen or had happened or to, to them and apparently it been very successful but like that was back in the, in the 70s and it actually still practices today I think still but why, why hasn't that type of thing caught on? Like why aren't anesthetists nowadays taught hypnosis like in college or wherever they're training and 
what, like, if it was so successful, and if one man can have such success back 30 years ago, like, mm. why is it something you don't hear of now? Well, I think in the context of the type of operations he was working with, I remember it's a number of years since I talked to him about it, but he was doing lots of orthopedics. So the, the typical scenario would be that a patient would have a fracture and they'd come into casualty, they'd probably have a full stomach, so they couldn't have an anesthetic that night, and yet they'd have pain and they'd have a broken wrist or whatever. And in that context, it's easier to surrender to somebody who is saying, well, okay, if you trust me, follow me, follow the instruction, we'll be able to correct that fracture by manipulating it without having to wait till tomorrow morning. So it's a good deal from that point of view. I'm not so sure it's proven in the bigger surgical situations that many people have to go in. Though I suspect, I showed you the lady with cesarean section, with acupuncture. I suspect there's a little bit of patient selection there. In other words, not everyone's appropriate to it. And so there's a little bit of the same idea as in hypnosis. There's a certain group of patients who are going to respond very well to it. There's then a cohort of patients who won't respond to it at all. And then there's a lot of people in the middle who under normal circumstances wouldn't respond to it, but if they're in casualty late at night, if they wait till tomorrow morning, they've got pain, they might be a little bit more susceptible to it. So I think it's important to see the context in which he was working. In terms of anesthesia, a lot of anesthetists who do pediatric anesthesia use hypnotic techniques to gain the confidence of the child. In other words, lots of my colleagues, when the child comes in, they'll get the child to, say, for example, to describe their house, and they'll get them to describe the color of the door, and all of a sudden the mind is captured because the child is thinking about the color of the door, and then they'll ask them to open the door. So the my child is opening the door, and they'll ask them to go up the stairs, and the child will actually follow this routine while they're getting the anesthetic. And I've seen the situation where the child is describing getting into the bed as they go off to sleep. And it's, it's beautiful because it matches both the anesthesia and the hypnosis. So you're using the hypnosis to get them into the surgery. I don't think that we could get volunteers for a trial in which we have 20 people with appendicitis and we say that we're going to give 10 of you general anesthesia and the other 10 hypnosis. I don't think ethics committee would allow it true, and I don't think people would volunteer for it. Because one of the nice things about anesthesia, clearly it works. Sometimes there's a debate between does this complementary therapy work, does this new tablet work, and you look at the trials and all the details. But like when something clearly works, you don't actually need trials. You don't need trials to prove that anesthesia works because it clearly works. The interesting thing about anesthesia is we don't actually know how it works. And it's been around for 150 years. And again, sometimes, and this gets back to an earlier comment about technology, we believe sometimes that because medicine is there that we know exactly how it's working. Well, there you have it. Anesthesia, 150 years, clearly works. But we don't actually know how it works. And I suspect when we solve how it works, we'll actually know how hypnosis works. We'll know how a lot of these systems works. And ultimately, we'll know how the mind works because it's all information and knowledge about how the mind works. That was wonderful. It was a, a fantastic talk. I'm a little bit muddled on Sanskara and the constitution, the three different constitutions, the air, fire, and water. Yeah. And you mentioned inheritance along with Sanskara. What about hereditary disease and like children who die of disease, if you can 
perhaps respond to? Yeah, the lecture was a melting pot of lots of different ideas, so they're not necessarily coming from the same systems. The concept of sanskara is a philosophical concept, and really I only mentioned the genetics bit just to give you a sense of what, like in philosophy it's saying that any individual has a, an inheritance. So a lay audience or a modern a medical audience will only really understand that in terms of genetics. In other words, we're familiar with the idea that you can have a genetics that will determine a particular disease or whatever. And as you ask the question, clearly you have genetic abnormalities producing diseases in children and adults, etc. So that's a physical aspect. The only point I'm really making is that philosophy has a bigger concept of inheritance. And other than give you the concept, I'm probably not going to be able to take it too far because I, I'm not too sure that we can handle that idea yet because it doesn't really tally with our scientific brain. Any other questions? Question here. Yeah. Thank you very much for your lecture. Last week a report was published in the UK in, in the wake of the Dr. Harold Shipman affair and there was big questions raised over the self-regulation of doctors. I suppose in terms of you know, your lecture on philosophy, should doctors regulate themselves or should a more independent body be involved in the regulation of the work of doctors? Well, the Medical Council, as it's set up here, has lay representation. It's not just exclusively um, doctors. So it's, it's widely representative of the profession and it has, as I say, lay members of the public on the council. It's also set up by legislation from the Dáil in 1978, and the legislation is reviewed. And so there is very much a process in place of regulating the profession that has an input from society in general. And there's increased emphasis on what's referred to as audit, where you actually look at your, the, the cases and how they uh, have the, pro the progress in the cases. And, and how the, the various um, therapies are working out. And clearly there is a need, not alone to have audit, but to actually fund the audit. In other words, society can't have it both ways. They can't say that look, we want better quality service from the medical profession and we think they should look at their caseload and see who gets better. You have to actually provide the resources to actually put that into place. And there's a provision for um, you know, continuing medical education and there is that up now where they're going to uh, praise doctors, where basically every so often you'll have to be interviewed about your um, practice, etc. So I think in fairness to the system, it is moving towards a more transparent form of regulation that includes not alone the profession, but includes regulation from Parliament and members of the public. And clearly cases like the Shipman case, etc., you know, emphasize the importance of that approach. And perhaps I would say that that medical council approach probably needs to be rolled out in complementary medicine also. In other words, there needs to be regulation there too, so that at the end of the day, the public can be happy that there are standards and there is some monitoring of what's going on. Any other questions? Um, you mentioned about diet and eating foods that are locally grown and in season. Yeah. In Ireland, like in terms of fruit, most of the fruit we eat, especially in the winter, is imported. So, so we're, we're, we're in trouble. We'll have to leave. <laughs> <laughs> we're in the wrong country. 
My understanding of that particular phraseology is it refers to your temperate zone. So it's not just the fruit that's available in Ireland, it's across this particular latitude. So, and I suppose it's just having a, a go at the trend towards eating a lot of unusual things. And it's just making the point that, uh, well, this system says that's not such a good idea in the long run. But I think it's interesting to look at food. I think it's interesting to make an attempt to get you know, good quality food and to know the source of the food and to make sure that it's more natural. Maybe if a few people do that, then it, over a period of time, will allow better standards to evolve. In terms of the West, too much in the way of Ayurvedic centers. Yeah, there are, but I'd be careful. I think the problem in this jurisdiction is it, there isn't a tradition and there isn't an organized structure. And I've been to India on many occasions and you know, when you go there you realize that there's a lot of work to be done before this medicine can be appropriate, I think, to our particular part of the world. And I mean that without offending or trying to offend those who practice it. And there's certainly a very noble tradition there in Ayurvedic medicine. If you take a very simple thing like, for example, herbs, there are so many herbs. And the process from herb to medicine in clinic is quite an intricate process. And one of the things that amazed me when I was out in India is even, you know, even recognition of the herbs is often a traditional knowledge that is dying in India. And so I think even within the tradition there's a fair amount of work to be done. So to get back to the first part of your question, in advising you to be a bit cautious, there are Ayurvedic centers in the world. They exist in lots of the big cities, London, cities in the States and there's more and more interest in it. I very much enjoyed your talk and I, I thought there were some very important general insights in terms of the effect of the therapist and so on. But when you come down to the detail, I have a problem with the fact that a lot of it isn't very testable. I mean, you mentioned three you know, main energies. Well, why is it three? Or could it be the four basic humors of Galen or could it be five or six? I mean, how are you actually going to... Uh, test the truth or falsity of those claims. Mm. And then a, a, a somewhat related, a distant, loosely related comment as well. When you mentioned the regulation of complementary medicine. Mm. If complementary medicine is to be regulated to the same standards as, say, the pharmaceutical industry is, then in fact very few, if any, complementary therapies will be licensed because there isn't the evidence that either, the te either they're untestable or for some reason the testing hasn't been done. Mm. Yeah. Well, certainly the, the reference to Galen, etc., yet there is a tradition in the West about the four humours. When you go to India, they say, I believe the movie is coming out, Alexander, but they say that Alexander went to India and that his doctors, his court, basically took the concepts from Ayurveda and brought them back to Greece and they reappeared as our four elements, our four humours. And they maintained that there were five and that the Western mind couldn't grasp the concept of space and just deleted it. And they go on to say that our medicine is based on you know, a false interpretation of their original traditional medicine. In terms of testing it, I, I agree, ultimately it needs to be tested and it's going to be quite challenging to test it. But some of my colleagues or friends who practice Ayurveda and do research, 
for example, they've come across at the moment a herb that is useful in burns and reduces the pain after burns. And it's interesting, they look at this and it comes out of the tradition, but they're examining it in a very methodical, scientific way. And they have some of the best centers in the world looking at it. And they really have said that they don't want to have a situation where this cream is looked at just because it's a traditional knowledge base. They actually want to see it in terms of the science. So I think that that's what needs to happen. I think we need to look at the remedies and to examine them. And that will be challenging because hard enough to get research money in the West for standard medical investigation, it's going to be very difficult to get any money to investigate any of this. So I accept it's a challenge and it remains to be seen whether that challenge can be looked at in the future. But you never know. I think at present my interest in Ayurveda is to just get a sense of um, how a different system looks at medical problems and to see can we learn from that. I hope that in the fullness of time some of those concepts can be tested in a scientific framework and that we can utilize them in our own medicine. Okay, thank you very much for your attention. Thank you.